This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. I am Randy, along with Andy Payton here. We are the two pastors at Methodist Temple, United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. So good to have you with us, and Pastor Andy, good to be back with you here on this Wednesday. It is good to be back, and I have hope it is warming up outside, so that's a good thing, too. Uh, I think we might hit freezing today. We've been below freezing for several days. Uh, meteorologists at the television station say that the high today is expected to be 31. Close enough. I don't remember ever feeling as cold as I felt than yesterday when I was picking my girls up from school. Uh, they're walkers, so we we, uh, we go to the side door and we're able to get the girls a little quicker than if we pick them up just in the, just in the car. And uh, I had to wait for like 15 minutes outside. <laughs> Holy cow. I was shaking by the time they finally came out. Anyway. That's when you know it's cold. If you can get from your car inside whatever building you're going into and it only takes two minutes, it's not a problem. That's a win. That yes. is. Yes. That, that is. But if you've got to be out in it, man, it has been rough. Well, all right. So we're past Christmas now, even in the church. We're, we are past the Christmas season. But what you know what hit me this week? Uh, and it does every year. It's like, I'm not ready for another holiday so soon after the New Year's holiday. Mm-hmm. And then the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday right. comes up. You right. know, there's another, you know, important holiday right there. And so we're in holiday season for a long time, you know, beginning in Thanksgiving. It comes mm-hmm. one right right after the other. And that's, of course, was the theme of last week's service because Monday was MLK Day. And so your sermon, and we're going to get to that very, very shortly, uh, was certainly influenced by MLK Day. And so we're going to talk about some of that, but let's do our soul check-in. And our souls are, there's a little bit of a risk that our souls might be a little icy uh, (laughs) this this week, maybe, but uh, maybe not. I mean, maybe I, not, yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Um, it is we we are getting into more regular time, right? More, more regular time. The, the daily routines uh, are more like they are throughout the rest of the year. So it's back to our regular spiritual practices, right? You know, yeah. Prayer and, and study and, and relationships. I've been experimenting with journaling lately. Mm-hmm. Yep. I uh, well, I was thinking about John Wesley, and I was thinking about what his spiritual practices were. And one that I've never really heard mentioned all that much, but it's, it's it's glaring because he wrote everything down. Everything he ever did is written down in a journal. And uh, I thought, I wonder what would it look like if I started sort of doing that, where just reflecting on my day, and I'm convinced that if you want to hear God speak, you need to listen to your life. And what better way to do that in a intentional way than to write some things down? I had a college film professor who highly recommended that we journal Mm. every day that we journal. And I did it in fits and starts, and I haven't done it much lately. But the thing about writing is we think that we have thoughts that we put down on writing, but writing spurs thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, definitely. uh, Yeah, yeah. And you forget. It's amazing how much I forget, you know. You go back and listen to like old sermons and you think, did I say that? Or, you know. At least you have that record. Yeah, yeah. And, but uh, the journalist, it works that way absolutely because I'll go back on some of my journals and I will, you know, I'll journal for two weeks in a row and then miss it for two months in a row. 
but they're there and I can go back and see them, but I can't put the whole story back together. But right. yeah, but yeah. It, yeah, it's so, so important. So good luck with that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay, we are in the middle of this sermon series uh, on the 25 Articles of Religion. We are up to 23. I'm going to read it. Getting close to the end, 25 articles, we're up to 23. And this one is called, Of the Rulers of the United States of America. This is this coming weekend. This coming weekend, yes. Okay. All right, the President, the Congress, the General Assemblies, the Governors, and the Councils of State, as the delegates of the people, are the rulers of the United States of America, according to the division of power made to them by the Constitution of the United States and by the constitutions of their respective states. And the said states are a sovereign and independent nation and ought not to be subject to any foreign jurisdiction." So I guess, uh, Andy, we should back up a little bit to talk about these articles generally. Uh, the 25 articles for the Methodists came out of the 39 articles for the Church of England, uh, for the Anglican Church, uh, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, uh, they were priests in, in the Church of England. And so something that, one of those things that's real obvious, but then it hits you when you just stop to look at it, is that uh, the Church of England was the state religion. The United States of America was set up so that there would not be a state religion. And so isn't it interesting that the the state religion of England came over to America where religious freedom was reigning, of course, but to kind of make that work is interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, Wesley wrote this, and he struggled a little bit about the the American Revolution, and uh, he was a, a priest in the Church of England. He was Anglican. Um, Wesley himself was a supporter of the monarchy um, and that kind of stuff. And so you read that article and you think, I bet he had some hesitation as he wrote that. But at the end of the day, the gospel is bigger than any sort of nation. And and that's something we always have to come back to. We always have to be careful not to equate the gospel or the kingdom of God with our particular country or political affiliation or whatever, which way you want to go about it. What do you think he was getting at with this article? Because this article would not, of course, have been in the 39 articles. Well, he's putting his blessing upon it, really. He's honoring this, is, this has happened, this is, this is real, and um, he's going to honor that this is how it's going to be in the United States. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that's what it represents, really. Yeah, and it took off like wildfire. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the articles are been they're being written towards the end of the 1700s around that time the revolution's going on. It's just getting started. There's a sense who knows if it's if we're going to make it as America or not at that point. Um and even early on, he's he's definitely baptizing it and giving his blessing. Okay, so as has been your practice, uh, Andy, uh, you haven't taken these articles and just broken them down word for word. You've tried to find a truth that they contain and then an application for today. And it's been really, really good in that respect. So I'll let you explain how you transitioned from the article itself into the message that you delivered Sunday. Okay. Um, well, last week's article um, had to do with the ceremonies of the church. And um, last week's article talked about how uh, the ceremonies can differ from church to church to church. And so there's no like one set way that a person has to live into the gospel. And I find that a very helpful principle. Um and so, of course, if you think about the Articles of Religion when it comes to ceremonies of the church, that's kind of a shot again at the Roman Catholic tradition, which the Roman Catholic tradition is very um, 
everywhere you go, it's kind of the same. I went to South Africa once to a Catholic service that was done in a different language than my own. Still even knew what was happening just because I knew the format of the worship service. That's the Catholic tradition. Well, in the Protestant tradition and the Reformed tradition, that's not the case. They say that you can contextualize your way of worship, you contextualize your way of doing things. And so um, building on that kind of idea, though, uh, what I suggested in my sermon was that essentially Christ is universal, but there is a diverse there's a diversity in how you can live into a Christ-like Christ-likeness. And the person I used as an example that kind of lived into this was a, I'm going to call him an elder in the United Methodist tradition. Um, we don't have saints necessarily in the Methodist church, um, in the Protestant churches, but um, E. Stanley Jones is the guy's name, and I call him an elder because he is such a uh, wise presence in terms of what it looks like to to indigenize the gospel in um, a specific context or specific culture. Um, one of the things Jones really believed was that the gospel could become indigenous to each culture. And so there wasn't going to be like one way that you lived into your Christianity. There was multiple right answers in how one lives into their Christianity, which is something I think the Church of America today really needs to think about. Um, there's no like one way for us to do this. Uh, it's partic- particularly, I would say that to United Methodists. There's no one way we have to be able to do this. There's going to be multiple right answers on, on how we can faithfully say yes to Christ. Yeah. Well, thank you for not calling me out on my mistake for reading next week's article first. You and I, in our pastor talk before we open the mics, were already talking about that yeah, article yeah. and already talking about Sunday. Sorry about that. So, And then I asked you to transition into next week. You did a beautiful job huh. without, without calling me out on that. So let me read, the, let me read that. Uh, pastor Andy preached, of course, last week on Article 22, and he pointed it out. It's of the rites and ceremonies of churches, which says it's not necessary that rites and ceremonies should in all places be the same or exactly alike, for they have always been different and may be changed according to the diversity of countries, times, and men's manners, so that nothing ordained against God's word Whosoever, through his private judgment, willingly and purposely doth openly break the rites and ceremonies of the church to which he belongs, which are not repugnant to the word of God and are ordained and approved by common authority, ought to be rebuked openly, that others may fear to do the like, as one that offendeth against the common order of the church and woundeth the consciences of the weak brethren. Every particular church may ordain, change, or abolish rites and ceremonies, so that all things may be done to edification." And in the service, we only read the first sentence there. But the idea being that there's um, there's uh, latitude yeah. in there in the way that we it do, gets a do little, church. It gets a little messy when we talk about how much latitude, though. That's the big debate. Um, I mean, obviously, in, in many mainline churches, the debate is over gay marriage. Um, and, and so some congregations are going to be okay with that. Others are not. And that's a big rift in Christianity today. It's been there for a, a, quite a while. Um, but I think what this article is pointing to more so is like, um, for example, like a liturgy in our book of worship when it comes to, for example, a baptism. You and I don't have to use a pre- prescribed, like this is the only thing we can use. We can kind of, uh, and we do this, we kind of use some of it, but then we 
we do our own thing as well. And so there's some more freedom for the spirit to move, if you will, that kind of thing. And you used as an example our first service, which is traditional, yes. and our second service, Very different. Which, which is contemporary. Yeah, kind of the same message, kind of not the same message, kind of not the same message. It changes. Uh, the vibe changes um, in terms of just the, the different types of worship, styles of worship, pre- preferences when it comes to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You said that you know on the conservative or traditional side, if you go too far, it can become rigid, and on the liberal or progressive side, if you go too far, it can become chaotic. Mm-hmm. But they can come together. Yeah. Well, I think that's the, I mean, overall, what, what's beautiful about the gospel, and let's just kind of take a step back away from just the worship conversation and look at it more broadly. When it comes to the gospel in general, um, it's conservative in the best sort of way because it's centered in Christ. But it's also progressive in the, in the best sort of way because it says there's infinite number of ways that we can live into this. And in my sermon, I talked about how uh, conservatism without the progressive becomes rigid and the progressivism without the conservative becomes chaotic. It, and so you really need both. You need that groundedness, but openness at the same time. And so I think that's a really a healthy approach when it comes to being faithful and living into the gospel. And and so I would suggest it's like two sides of one coin that we call gospel or faith. And you said that we have this very thing in the Methodist tradition, and then that's when you brought in E. Stanley Jones, and there was a personal reason you were even introduced to E. Stanley Jones, and I think that added some emotional impact uh, to your message on, on Sunday, because your grandmother sure. uh, gave you a book yes. uh, yeah. uh, of E. Stanley Jones with her annotations. Yes. Um, so, yeah, my grandmother actually went to, uh, they called them, he called them ashrams, ashrams, and he got the idea from India. Um, she went, so just to kind of draw a comparison, what those are, it was sort of like the walk to Emmaus before the walk to Emmaus was the thing, you right. know, that kind of thing. So my grandmother actually went to some of those back in the day in the 1960s. And then my mom and my aunt actually attended some of his revivals. My grandfather drove them somewhere in Kansas, East Stanley Jones was speaking and, and heard uh, him, him preach too. And so he's had an impact upon my family. Um, and my, my grandmother, and after I became a Christian, gave me one of his books called Victory Through Surrender. And uh, I still have the actual book she gave me, and it has all her little underlines and notes in it. And uh, I remember as I read it, um, later on, really, she gave it to me early on, and I had to go off and do my own thing for a while when it came to even my Christianity. But as I circled back around and started reading, reading what he had to say, I thought, my God, my goodness, this guy is really ahead of his time in terms of this idea of conservative and progressive like he's grounded but yet he's open-minded and i just felt at home in this approach to living into uh being a disciple of jesus i just really felt grounded in that and i think in some ways his theology is what gave birth to at methodist temple um this idea of i see christ in you this idea of what he's talking about kind of gave birth to what we're doing here today. And uh, it really feels, it feels at home in terms of our own United Methodist theology and how we understand how grace works, those kinds of things as well. So, uh, and I know we're going to get more into his story in a little bit, but I think one of the things we're all struggling with right now in terms of our context, our society, our culture, the state of our denomination, Randy, is 
is how do we stay grounded but yet open-minded? What does it mean to live faithfully in a uh, season in which culturally and as a church we're so deeply divided? And I think that's one of the reasons why I, I lean towards East Stanley and find a home there. Well, I, that's understandable because he somehow held together, even if he held it together in tension, being a serious evangelical yet into the social gospel as well. Yeah. Not choosing one or the other, not being rigid or, or chaotic, mm-hmm. but somehow holding those, those two in tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 yeah and, and, and we need both. Again, I can't emphasize that enough. We really, really do. Um, we need a little bit of law. We need a little bit of spirit, you know, that kind of thing. We need a little faith. We need a little bit of works. And uh, it's this, it's healthy spirituality. It's healthy Christianity. It's a balanced approach. You talked about his conversion, and uh, there are parallels between East Stanley Jones and, and John Wesley. Mm-hmm. When I was hearing about his conversion experience, mm-hmm. and he wanted to embrace, he felt like embracing the world after his conversion mm-hmm. at a revival meeting, and th- that makes you think about Wesley saying that the his parish is the world. And the world is my parish. The world yeah. is my parish. Yeah. So there are parallels between the two of them. There's some interesting stories there early on for him. He was uh, converted in 1901 at Memorial Methodist Church in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, one of the stories I didn't get into in my sermon, but I feel like it's an interesting one, was just after his conversion, he was on a streetcar in Baltimore. And uh, that was in the days of segregation where you know African-American people couldn't sit in certain places on the streetcar. Well, just after his conversion, he stood up, got out of the way, invited an African-American person to take his seat. And the person he was with was like, whoa, wait a minute. And he would say, that was part of his conversion. <laughs> that was part of it. Right. And, yeah. and I'm like, wow. I mean, he, when, he, um, when he became a Christian, he really began to see life in a new way. In his words, the universe had meaning. It was good. He felt at home again, and of course, he felt like we were all God's children, too. All that changed as a result of going to a revival meeting, and we don't do that much anymore in the context of the church. It's it's just not that way, um, but what I think about when I think about E. Stanley and what happened to him at that church meeting was that, that God's presence did something to him, changed him. His heart was strangely It really warped. was, yeah. and, 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 I, and I wonder, I do... I don't have the answer to this one, but I wonder what that looks like for us today. Do we really believe that God's spirit and presence can transform us in such a way where we uh, can love courageously? Because that was a courageous thing for a young person. He was, I think he was... uh, 17, I think. 17, yeah, when this happened. Think about that. The bus incident? Yes. I think I heard that was he was 17 years old. Yeah, he was born 1884 and it was 19... Yeah, 17, Yeah. 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 So, and talk more about the the pastor, um, oh Robert Bateman. Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah. the the pastor that was conducting the revival in Baltimore, uh, his name's Robert Bateman, and uh, what his what makes him famous really is he's he's the pastor that led the hymn "Near My God" to the as the Titanic sank, and the story behind behind that story is um, Robert Bateman was actually getting onto one of the. Uh, rescue boats, lifeboats on the Titanic, had his spot on the lifeboat, and then looked at the Titanic and saw his sister was still on on the ship that was sinking, of course. And and he demanded they stop. He switched places with her. 
Um, the only thing she got, he gave her his Bible. He had a Greek New Testament, I think, with him, gave her that. She gets on the life boat, goes to her safety, lives. He dies sinking near my God to thee as the Titanic sinks. And I, I feel like that's a, what a powerful expression of a, what we would describe as agape love. There's no greater love than a person to give their life for another. That's Christ-like love. And and here's the man that preached the message where E. Stanley Jones was converted, and here's the man that lived the message when the Titanic sank. And you know, That's amazing. Should have made the movie. Should, I would think so, right? <laughs> I remember in the movie they were singing a hymn, I think. I don't know if it was that. I think it was. Yeah. yeah. It might have been that song. Um, yeah. So, But, uh, yeah, when the ship begins to sink, what song are you going to begin to sing? That kind of thing. Wow. It's powerful. Okay, so you continued with his biography. He went on to Asbury. You've got a family connection to Asbury. So, yeah, uh, my grandfather um, graduated Asbury College Seminary, became a pastor. My dad graduated Asbury College, went to Asbury Seminary, but ultimately transferred to another one towards the end there. Uh, My mom's a graduate from Asbury as well. My brother, (laughs) he even graduated from Asbury and uh, went on to Asbury Seminary. Uh, don't ask me where I went to seminary <laughs> or college. I didn't go to either one of them, but uh, uh, there's a long connection uh, with Asbury and my family, and East Stanley Jones went to Asbury as well. Uh, graduated there in 1907, became a Christian missionary to India, and that's where his career really starts to take off. He's an evangelist in India, and at first struggled to get any uh, success, really, in terms of his proclamation of the gospel. And then... Um, he pivoted, as anyone who's ever successful does. When things don't work, you change, and he adapted. And the big change for him was he began to realize that his job as an evangelist, go back to that word evangelical, and I think this is the real meaning of that word, um, his, his job as an evangelical was to defend Christ, not necessarily Christianity, he was not there to defend a form of Christianity, a, a doctrinal Christianity, a, a set of rituals and creeds Christianity. He was just to, there to promote Christ. And he believed that it was possible for the folks in the Indian culture to live into the Christ in their own way. It didn't have to be a westernized way of doing it. Um, so just really explain it in my own words. like He believed that our lives ultimately work in Christ-like ways. And he was there to defend that. He believed that was true for us individually, as, as, as a community, and even as a nation, as countries. That, that's the way, at our core, we're designed to live. And so once he started go, going down that path and that approach, his whole approach to evangelism and missions began to change, even to the point where in India, East Stanley Jones would not preach in churches. He would preach in like lecture halls, and he would give a lecture on Basically, why he believes the kingdom of God, why he believes in Christ, why he believes our lives work in that way. He would give a lecture about why he believed that would be true. And then he would open up to questions. And people would be able to ask questions, more like a lecture, really, at a university or something like that. And it was just a much different approach. And uh, another thing he would do was he would invite um, people of all other faith perspectives to come to the table with him. He had these round table meetings. And his question to them was, Tell me how your faith works for you, and I'll tell you how my faith works for me. And uh, this was an avenue for him to affirm how Christ-likeness was working in people of the Hindu background, a Muslim background, that kind of thing. And there was there was a really this this sense of universality to 
Christ-like love for him, and and it gave him a much different type of ground to stand on. He was not as combative with these other faith perspectives, not as combative with people who are different than him. He was able to be more sympathetic with them because he believed that the presence of a Christ-like God was in these folks that maybe had a different religious background than them. And a lot of this was born, of course, with a relationship with Jesus Christ, but also with this relationship with Gandhi. Gandhi, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, he at India, India, obviously, in the early 20th century, Gandhi was the big name in terms of leadership, and uh, he developed a, a personal relationship with Gandhi. And, and Gandhi suggested to Jones that he do, the church really needs to do four things. And the first and the most important was we need to live more like Jesus and worry less about our Christianity. Uh, the second thing was we needed to make love the overall um, focus of what we we're doing, the driving force behind what we're doing. Third, uh, we needed, of course, be more sympathetic to other faith perspectives, not as combative. And then finally, we can do all that without necessarily wandering down our own convictions. And so that those kind of those four ideas became kind of like the groundwork to what he tried to do. And uh, it's just a very interesting way of thinking about presenting the gospel, talking about the gospel. But even even just take it out of the early 20th century and let's put it in the 21st century now. My hunch is, that Randy, you and I could go over to the coffee shop and talk to someone and say, "Hey, you know, what do you think about Jesus?" Right, right, and and we're going to get a fairly positive answer. But if we go to that same coffee shop, ask that same person, "Hey, what do you think about Christianity?" They're going to give you a much different answer. Uh, and this is the Gandhi thing again. Gandhi was famous for saying, "I'm okay with Jesus. It's the Christians I have a problem with." And and I think a lot of people would echo that kind of sentiment even to this day. I've got personal stories like that. I don't have permission to tell those stories, but very very close to me. Same yeah, situation. I'm okay yeah. with Jesus. Yeah, I, it's the institution that I'm struggling with, and and I I would say I mean personally I can say yeah I'm definitely there. Uh, I struggle with the institution sometimes and the kind of stuff we get caught up in, and and I struggle with how that how does that fit in with the spirit of Jesus Christ? And any serious Christian needs to think about that and, and wrestle with that because um, it's just human nature. We get caught up and tangled up in stuff that does not really necessarily fit with the core of the message and. And that's the constant struggle for the church. Number four is so important. Don't water down your own convictions. So important. And that's what, to me, it seems that Jones did. He was as evangelical, as traditional. He was was unapologetically a Christ follower. Yeah. He was unapologetically all about Jesus. That's the good news. It's Jesus. It's not all this other stuff. It's Jesus. Um, He would say that... What we see in Jesus and written into the pages of the New Testament is, to use his language, is written into the constitution of our own reality, our own being. They all kind of fit together hand in hand. And uh, Now, just to be clear, he wouldn't equate the New Testament with God. He, he was very, he's very specific <laughs> about that. He's like, it's not the Word of God made ink, I think was what he called it. It's not the Word of God put on a page. It's the Word of God made flesh. What we see in Jesus is the same thing we see working in our lives today. And uh, that's a much different ground to stand on, experiential, which is, I think, deep down is what we're looking for. We want an experiential knowledge of God's presence in our lives, and and Jesus introduces us to that that path, really, of how to live into that. So E. Stanley Jones was influenced by Gandhi, and he influenced, in a major way, Somebody else. Yes, yes. So uh, in 1947, Gandhi was assassinated, and the 
Methodist publishing house asked E. Stanley Jones to write a book about his relationship with Gandhi. And so he wrote it. And in that book, he, of course, talked about Gandhi's um, confrontational but yet nonviolent approach to bringing about social change in India. Of course, Gandhi was uh, resistant to the British and power, the, the British powers that be uh, of his time. And, uh, and Jones, in that example, he saw someone implementing some of Jesus' actual teachings about how Jesus actually says that we should live in the Sermon on the Mount. He saw this as, a, hey, this is working <laughs> in the life of Gandhi and the people of India. He turns that, though, and he begins to see as that uh, as an approach for the African-American folks in the United States, as segregation is still a part of our country at that time. And uh, he, he writes about that. But uh, I'll get back to that in a second. Um, so he writes this book about Gandhi, though, and uh, it's a complete failure. It's a bomb. And no one, it just bombs. No one buys it. No one cares. It's published in 1948. People are not interested, all that interested culturally in civil rights. We're just getting over the World War II. Um, they're not interested in social change in this way. Um, and so no one buys the book except for one young seminary student by the name of Martin Luther King, who uh, read about E. Stanley's depiction of Gandhi's approach. And in the margin of that book on Gandhi that King was reading, he wrote in the margin, he said, this is it. Uh, this is the pass- pathway of freedom for the African-American in America today. And so you can go to the uh, Atlanta MLK Museum and even see that very book where he, he wrote that. And so what was E. Stanley's, one of his biggest failures, no one read this book, is having implications even to this day. Right. It's powerful. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing that I had not heard of E. Stanley Jones until you. And thank you. Yeah. Thank well, you. Um, yeah. thank my grand, grandmother. <laughs> um, yeah. You had these, how many were there? Um, you had these points that E. Stanley Jones made. And the first one was that we live in a moral universe. Yes. Mm-hmm. So important to him. He... So he, he writes a bunch, of, he, I think he writes 28 books in all. A lot of them are like daily devotionals. Uh, Abundant Living, I think, is one of them. The Way is another one. Victorious Living is another one he wrote. Every one of those devotionals basically start out with him laying out the groundwork of the, that idea, that we live in a moral universe, that the universe uh, takes sides. It responds positively to virtue, negatively to vice. And so... Uh, God's law, God's way never breaks. It's we who break against it as we refuse to live according to it. And so he always starts out with this idea. For him, the kingdom of God, to use another phrase from the Gospels, the kingdom of God um, is not about uh, rules or creeds or anything. It's, it's this idea that Christ is sovereign in our relationships and how we relate to one another. Like We can either do this or don't do this. Of course, that's our choice. But one way leads to flourishing. The other way leads to our own peril, our own our own deaths. And so that's a huge point, but it's echoed in a lot of the civil rights leaders. MLK had another quote he would use that the moral arc of the universe is long and bends towards justice. Um, in my sermon, I talk about Desmond Tutu, who also affirms uh, this idea of a moral universe. And and in the sermon, and I think this is important to make this point again, um, it, that flies in the face of our culture today. That really does. Um, because it's suggesting that there's something absolute. You can't just make up your own story and get away with it. You can't make up your own ideals and get away with it. You can't live against a Christ-like, positive, outgoing love and get away with it. And so I feel like that's a very big challenge to what we see, and I'll just say it politically in our country today, in the United States, 
And in my sermon, I was an equal opportunity defender. I said, I think I see that happening both sides. The, the political conservatives and the political progressives both have these stories that they've told themselves and they lean into it, they live into it. And uh, it's basically reflective of a, a broader postmodern culture, which says basically we, we are the authors of our own morality. And what this is suggesting is the gospel of Jesus Christ says, no, we're not. We're not the authors of our own morality. In fact, morality is discovered. It's inherent into who we are. And so to really understand the gospel means that we understand that, hey, we are talking about how to live pragmatically and practically at our core um, as individuals, as nations, as communities, and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's a powerful statement. <laughs> I, but, I mean, I've been asking myself a question, a question lately. It's like, can I think of a time where a Christ-like response would be inappropriate? <laughs> and I cannot. I mean, no. there's always the extreme, the extreme case. Right. They will say, someone will say inevitably, yeah, we'll look at World War II. Let's look at that one for a moment. Um, if we did not stand up to the Nazis as a, as a world, then um, what would have happened? I mean, and then they would say, well, because violence is not Christ-like. Right. Right. My, my rebuttal to that is, uh, I feel like we had to do what we had to do in World War II. I really do. I, I agree we should stand up against evil, not, evil and Nazis. But here's the catch. The fact that we got to that place suggests that we had not implemented Christ-like living, and that's what led to that place. And the way that um, the world organized after World War I, historians will tell us that, that that led to, in many ways that led to World War II, that the way the world really punished Germany first um, led to that and was not altogether Christ-like in how we treated them. And so I would argue maybe in our world today, it seems like we go violence first all the time. <laughs> you know, it's like we our gun's bigger than your gun, our bomb's bigger than your bomb, and we invest billions of dollars in that sort of thinking, basically to uh, continue our own privilege up and against some of these other nations. And uh, what East Stanley Jones would say is we need to implement Christ-likeness as, as a world and I know that's going to probably rattle a cage or two of our listeners, but I think it's something we seriously need to consider because whatever we've been doing up to this point hasn't been working great. Maybe we should try to implement uh, a kind of a positive offensive of Christ-likeness in terms of how we, uh, we love our neighbors as, as nations even too. Uh, here's a, another tidbit from my sermon I didn't get, I didn't get into, but I find it fascinating. Uh, Jones was a very influential person in his time. Uh, he was like friends with President Roosevelt, even, uh, and uh, he uh, through those his his relationships through those kind of political ties, he was able to begin to negotiate with the people of Japan uh, before Pearl Harbor, and he was actively trying to negotiate a way that they could avoid Pearl Harbor and the World War II, the Pacific aspect of World War II, um, and his. His uh, East Stanley Jones's uh, proposal to them was um, New Guinea was owned, I think, by the Netherlands, another country. It was a very sparsely populated country. And he was saying, I wonder if we can negotiate where it's clear that Japan needs resources. That's the issue. I wonder if we can negotiate uh, them getting New Guinea because then they would have the resources they need. It would be 
His principle was we needed to advocate for equal opportunity for all people, and that would mean that we wouldn't have to go to war. Mm-hmm. And it, it didn't work, obviously. They, people said no, and then Pearl Harbor happened, and the rest is history in that sense. But I find that interesting that he was working towards that actively and had the courage to do something like that because that wasn't the sentiment of the time. Yeah. Um, someone able to do that. He I, was definitely ahead of his time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the second point, that first point was that we live in a moral universe. The second point was that Jesus is the embodiment of the Word made flesh. Yeah. Yeah. And the Word made flesh, not made book, not made ink. It's the Word made flesh. And that same Word that's made flesh in Jesus is active in our world today, yeah. working in our lives. And and I would challenge the listener, if if you're still listening at this point, <laughs> go listen, uh, go read some of the stuff in the New Testament when it talks about who Jesus is. Um, the first one I would go to is John, the Gospel of John, chapter one, where we get that line: "The Word became flesh, made its dwelling among us." Uh, the word, uh, the the Greek word that goes behind our English word "word" in that context, of course, is logos, right. which is wisdom, uh-huh. the wisdom of God, the wisdom that's eternal of God that's been here from the very beginning of time, uh, becomes embodied in the person of Jesus. That's the point John's making. Uh, the the term logos is a a Greek philosophical term uh, that, the, like, for example, the Stoics of that time would use, and it was like the organizing principle of reason running through all of creation. And so the Christians come along, and they, they adopt that, that Greek term logos, and they say, Jesus is the organizing principle. He is the embodiment of that. And uh, that kind of sentiment is echoed in other places in the New Testament. Uh, Colossians 1 says, in Christ everything holds together. And then, of course, the author of Hebrews says that he's the author and perfecter of our faith. And so this is very, I know this might seem sound different to a listener in terms of what Jesus is and who he is. Um, a lot of times we think of him when we say he's our Savior as like uh, we accept Jesus and it's a transaction between us and God and we go to heaven. But what Jones is saying is that Jesus comes to bring heaven to earth today. That's what he's saying. And, and, and it can happen today as, as we become faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And the third point is that um, all this requires the conversion of self. And I want you to deal with that briefly. And then I want, before we run out of time, I want to get to the, to really, to the challenge that you made to the congregation because it was powerful, but, but the conversion of self. So, yeah, um, uh, the, the idea of the conversion of ourselves, uh, Jones's fundamental point was that our, our big issue is our own self-centeredness. We struggle with meism. Um, the whole unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. And so if you take any of the things that we've set up to this point seriously, it means we have to move from being a self-driven self to a Christ-driven self. And, and of course, a self-driven self is someone that's touchy, easily offended, always trying to make people fit into their box. A Christ-driven self, um, instead of inward-focused, is outward-focused. They try to be forgiving, reconciling. They take responsibility for the things they can do. And uh, the big one is they try to work for the common good, not just the good of their particular group, but the common good. Um, in some of Jones's writings, he would say, he called it herd-driven. A herd-driven person is the most dangerous person in the world. Think about that. The most dangerous person in the world is, is someone that's possessed by their group. And what the gospel says is, no, 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 there is no boundary here. No, it, it, this, is, this is universal. And so uh, if it's universal, then we, we all stand equally uh, before this God who made us, too. So there's no, there's no room for discrimination, prejudice, or any kind of thing like that in society or in the church. 
All right, I'm going to skip right down to the, the final point that you wanted to make because it tied into the to the message of social justice and and MLK Day. And uh, you talked about what kind of sounded like a conversion experience of yours in one sense, um, a class that you took in, in 2006 in, in seminary on the ethical prophetic witness. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was a world ago. <laughs> but uh, so, um, yeah, to go back to this idea of getting over our own prejudice. I, I grew up in Ligoti, Indiana, which... Most maybe most listeners don't even know where that is, but it's uh, a little bit north of Evansville, kind of out in the middle of Southwest Indiana. And diversity for us was there was a Roman Catholic Church and the United Methodist Church, and I think maybe a Baptist Church somewhere in town. <laughs> and uh, we were just middle, you know, your typical white community. And so um, I became a Christian, accepted a call to ministry, went off to seminary, and uh, I wouldn't consider myself racist. I, I just wouldn't, and I, I don't think I am in the sense of I'm not consciously trying to be a racist, but um, subconsciously, I think I was cultured into, I'm used to my people, I'm used to my, my way, and, uh, and I think the biggest lie that I've I, I learned to tell myself is, we are what we are by the decisions we make, and that's just not altogether true. We don't, we don't get to choose where we are born. We don't get to choose what we look like. Anyway, all that is going into this class in seminary I took, um, taught by Dr. Rufus Burrow. It's called Ethical and Prophetic Witness. And I'll never forget the first night. He walks in dressed in a full suit, big, tall African-American guy, goes to the podium, says to the class, my name is Dr. Rufus Burrow. Good evening. Um, I'm here to piss some of you off. And I mean, I was in the back row at that point, but (laughs) I woke up and I was like, what's going on? who is this guy? And uh, he then proceeded to read the names of the uh, African-American young men who had been shot and killed in that Indianapolis community the week before. And then the next week he did it again. And then the next week he did it again. And, and I think one of the things that began to really bother me was how you didn't hear people talking about it in the, in the news and the media. That wasn't emphasized. These were forgotten people. They were shot, they were killed, and they were forgotten. And he would always pose the question after he did it, though. He'd read the names of the young African-American men killed in Indianapolis the week previous, and then he would ask the question, where are the Christians? Where are the church? Where's the church? And uh, over time, I began to realize, hey, not everyone's life is the same. And not everyone necessarily is treated the same. Um, uh, a quote that helped me a lot to kind of contend with that came from Abraham Heschel, who is a, a Jewish theologian. He said, hey, everyone, how do you say it? Few are guilty, but we're all responsible. That, that class really did change my life. Just those names of those people that I would have never even noticed if it wasn't for him reading them. So, And, and that, it does, that does strike a chord with the gospel as East Stanley Jones understood it. The gospel as MLK understood it as well. So and you that, looked out on our congregation and, and you said, so what, what, do, what do we do? Yes. What do we do? If he's challenging the church, what do we do? What, and, do, what are we called to do? Yeah. And yeah. To keep Christ before us. Yeah, every week we gather at Methodist Temple and we say, hey, we're going to strive to be a safe and non-judgmental community in Jesus' name. And I'm so proud. I am. I'm very proud of the strides that we've made as a congregation. Um. And we've grown. We really, we've really grown in the last 
four or five years because of that. But then I look out in the community and I think, how can we actively, you know, I'm not here to protest. I'm not here to do all that. I, I mean, how can we actively, though, positively live, live into that? Um, because as I was working on this East Stanley Jones stuff and reading about MLK this week, it's like, that's what it means to be a Christian. It really means to be willing to get on the positive offensive and do something good. As Wesley would say, do all the good you can, all the ways you can, that kind of stuff. And and I think that has the potential to unite some of us that otherwise would be divided as well. That DNA is in our congregation. I had the opportunity yesterday to go to the Rotary of Evansville and one of our own, Jack Buttram was the speaker. He is a Rotarian, but he was asked to talk about uh, his work um, in, in in social justice, in, in racial justice, and in labor relations. He's 94 years old, and he invited me to go as his guest, and I did. And I've already been impressed by Jack Buttram, but I was so impressed as he shared his story. He bought a business in the 1950s, I believe, Swanson Nunn Electric, uh, in the inner city of Evansville. And so as a white businessman with white employees in a black neighborhood, and he decided that he was going to have a relationship with the neighborhood, and he did. That's the short version of it. And then with labor relations, uh, Evansville had a bad reputation as a, a bad labor town, and he decided that he was going to work and form relationships as a management person, form relationships with the labor people, and it, and it worked. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I wanted to, to bring out was because that's just a little snippet of what he talked about. But in the Q&A session, someone asked him what his motivation was, and I knew in my heart, and the question took a long time to unfold, and as he was asking this long question, I knew in my heart what the answer was going to be. Mm. Mr. Buttram, what was your motivation? And he said, I have to blame a pastor. Mm -hmm. I said, yes. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I knew it must have been coming. I didn't know that it was. He hadn't told me that that was the motivation. But one of his pastors, not here, he's 94 years old. He's a younger man. He he hadn't arrived at Methodist Temple yet. But he had a pastor that was into social justice and fairness and relationship building in the neighborhoods. And it it converted Jack Butcher. It's not a liberal agenda. It's a gospel agenda. Right. I, I mean, the story that I, keep, I was just thinking about as you're talking about this was the a young 17-year-old boy in Baltimore, Maryland in 1901 who just accepted Jesus Christ. And then as a result of that, he looks down at the person and he says, hey, you can have my seat in the bus. Right. I, I, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, you you willingly move out of the way. Yeah. You live, you lay down your life for other people. And, and here's the thing. I've always told my Sunday school class, and I would say that to the church too, we are inclusive, not despite our faith, but because of it. Yes. If you really get it, yes. you, of course, are going to lay your life down for people who are different than you, uh, the oppressed, the poor, always. That's Jesus. And we and there, I don't care who you are. Read the Gospels. That's how it is in there. <laughs> and any other thing that claims to be Christian and doesn't do that has missed the point. So good on Jack Buttram for being a courageous leader, though. That's awesome. And one of our own happened to be videotaping this speech for WNIN, and we got permission from WNIN to use a small clip of that in worship on Sunday. And so, um, Does Jack know what's going to happen? He doesn't know it's going to happen yet. Cool. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Let's end it there, or we're going to set another time record, uh, Pastor Andy. It's a good place to end it on. 
We don't have to go and preview this Sunday sermon because we previewed we, it. We in the pre- previewed it on accident. We did. <laughs> Good to be with you, Pastor Andy. Good to have you listeners. Thank you so much for being with us. Have a great week. We'll see you again next week. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.